Let us pray. Gracious God, what a gift it is to be alive. What a gift it is to have a Christian community with whom we can experience support and we can grow together. And so as we come today to study First Peter, we pray that we learn something new about you and about ourselves and about the gift of this existence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we go into chapter two of First Peter, I do want to remind us of a few things, and those primarily are the three main themes of this letter, identity, what does it mean to be a member of God's holy people, um, the practical side, which means uh, as God's people, how do we navigate life in exile, and then three, it's just a letter of encouragement. Um, the author wants the community to hang in there. That's why he keeps saying, wait for Jesus to be revealed. And so as we read this, we should always ask the question, where do we need to be encouraged? So I'll dive into verse one. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. All right, so right off the bat, um, Peter is helping them lean into that pastoral practical side of things, which is as God's holy people, how do we navigate life in exile? And his answer is to lean into the formation of their character. I mean, that's really what he means when he says, get rid of all malice, guile, insincerity, envy. And I think like all things in scripture, we can hear this at both the individual level and the communal level, meaning that if there is insincerity in the community, address it. But also, if there is insincerity in your own life, you need to get rid of that. Now, the verb rid is very active, and I don't know if you've ever had any success in actually removing these things through your own effort from your own heart. And so we have to have a conversation about that, because as we get deeper into this, this letter, we'll see that Peter's understanding of how this happens is a little bit more nuanced, right? It's not an act of the will. We don't just wake up one day and say, all right, today's the day I'm going to remove the malice from my heart. It's a little bit more complex than that, as we've all experienced. And I think that complexity shows up in verse two, when he compares us to newborn infants 
who are to grow into salvation. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in scripture. And in fact, um, I published a book back in 2013 called New Clothes that was based on this verse because uh, it's a book or, or really the verse captures the mystery of the Christian faith. Uh, for those of you who have been kind of uh, part of our conversations and, and past studies about God's action, right? Is it future? Is it past? Is it present? Or is it all of the above? Um, this verse really captures the mystery that it's happening all at once. Uh, it's something that has happened, that is happening, that will happen. And so, for instance, notice the salvation is already ours, right? It's not so that you may attain salvation. The salvation is already ours, uh, but it's something we have to grow into. And so the metaphor I want to give you is, let's say, for instance, that you've got a three-year-old child, but a very nice pair of size five shoes is gifted to that child. Those shoes belong to the child, uh, they are his or her possession, but they don't yet fit. The child must grow into the shoes that he or she was gifted. And, and that's really kind of the way salvation works. When a, a child is born, that child is just as much a human being as you are. That child is just as perfect and complete as you are. A, a child is not less human than any of us here, but a child is not capable of having the conversation we're having today. Uh, even though that humanity is given to the child as a gift, he or she will need to grow into the fullness of that humanity, will need to develop intelligence and language and, and other gifts. And it's kind of like that with salvation. It, it, it already belongs to us. It's not something we're waiting for. It's not something that God's you know holding over us, that God's going to remove if we behave badly. But we haven't fully grown into it and thus can't fully embody it and enjoy it. And that's really what uh, I think Peter is getting at. And verse four kind of offers us the key. How do we do that? Well, we come to him, right? Jesus said the same thing. Come to me, all you who are tired and carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. We come to him. Uh, and that's a very personal thing. What does it mean for you to come to Jesus? Um, you know, we even say we're going to have a come to Jesus conversation. We've made it a kind of funny saying in our culture, but what does it mean for you to actively approach the Lord? That's what Peter is asking us to consider. And interestingly, uh, there's a reference to a very famous Psalm uh, that was very prominent in the early church around the stone that the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. And by referencing this psalm, Peter did something that uh, Jesus did in Matthew's gospel, that other New Testament authors did. It was understood that this chosen rejected stone was the foundation of the whole church. And in some sense, whenever Peter says, come to him, there's at the same time an invitation to share in that rejection. You know, Jesus basically said the same thing, right? Uh, take up your cross and follow me. And so to grow into this salvation, we already have, you know, the moment we think that we're going to move from strength to strength to strength to strength, we're actually coming to one 
who was rejected. And that rejection was the foundation of the salvation that God is bringing about. And this would have been very meaningful for the early Christian community, because remember, they were socially marginalized. They experienced themselves as rejected. And so even though this does not give us, um, uh, you know, an excuse to reject other people, um, it, it does raise the question, you know, where do you feel like a reject? Where do you feel not fully at home? Where do you feel misunderstood? And rather than complaining about that or playing the victim or pointing fingers, what would it mean for you to come to Jesus and to maybe move a little bit deeper into that as part of this growth and salvation that Peter is talking about? Verse five, he says, let yourselves be built. What I find magical about this verse is actually the tense of the Greek. It's in the passive voice. We don't really use passive voice a lot in English. We use the, uh, the past tense. We use the active voice. Uh, and so, for example, if I'm going to sit down with you and, and counsel you, um, I can say I counseled, right? I'm the, the one doing that. Uh, if, if you're counseling me, I can say I received counsel. I'm passive. But the passive voice is whenever we actively participate in a work that someone else initiates, right? So if you counsel me and I participate, it's not that I was counseled, but rather that I took counsel. I actively received that which you initiated. And I think that's what Peter's talking about when he says, let yourselves be built. It doesn't say build yourself into a spiritual house, right? He doesn't say, y'all go build it yourself. Nor does he say, you're a pawn being built. But he says, allow yourself to be built. Basically, cooperate with the work of God. And, and this really gets to that third component of why Peter wrote this letter to offer encouragement. He wants to remind this community that God is the one initiating this work, that God's the one who will complete the work, and that our job is to allow God to do it, to cooperate with this. Uh, I'm going to skip down to verse 9 whenever he tells the community that they are a chosen race. Now, for good reason, if we hear the phrase, uh, you know, if, if uh, here at St. Michael's we put on our website, we're a chosen race, that's going to raise some eyebrows for very good reason, right? We think of Hitler, we think of racism. And so that's a very unfortunate translation of the Greek in our context. The Greek word here is ethnos, and uh, it's often translated in the Bible as nations. And so in the Great Commission, um, whenever Jesus tells his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations, uh, it's the same word, nations, races, tribes, uh, really people group is, is, is the best, I think, translation. You're a chosen people group. Uh, and so here, Peter is not talking about the color of your skin. He's basically saying, you're a chosen community. God has set you apart to do something special. And so I think part of what we need to think about is, what does that actually mean? What does it mean for us to be set apart? One last note, 
uh, I think for Peter, part of that set apartness is a recognition that God has already done something in our life. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so however we understand uh, the, the, the identity of the church or what it means to be chosen or called or holy, all, I mean, all these different things that Peter's been talking about, however we understand that, it's not a group of superhumans who are out there kind of living more virtually than everyone else, but rather a group of people whose fundamental identity uh, is found in receiving God's mercy and a commitment to knowing that together. And, and Peter's very clear about that. Whoever we are, whatever the basis of our community is, it's not that we're all the good, the good people kind of living the way the rest of the world should, although clearly virtue matters and character matters, but rather that what we've been set apart to do is really to know that we've received God's mercy because from that knowing comes all the virtues that he talks about at the very beginning of the letter. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and pause there and we'll see what gets stirred up for you in this conversation and what questions you have about this letter. Okay, so we're going to pick up with verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but even those who are harsh. For it is to your credit, if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, and now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So uh, I'm going to start, I think, with verse 18, because I think it's really hard to read. Um, Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. This is really uh, difficult um, to listen to uh, with modern ears, especially as we rumble with our history of slavery in America, and we're more and more uh, attuned to that. We also just need to name, right, the way that 1 Peter 2 has been used in the history of the church to bless um, the institution of slavery 
when that was actually a theological debate. Now, that's not a theological debate today. We're all very, very clear that slavery as an institution is unacceptable. But there was a time, right, when there were Christians who were slaveholders, and many of them would appeal to this passage to uh, put some holy water on that practice. And so I don't really have any answers there. I think that this is mainly about having a conversation about the legacy of scripture, but it is important that we read 1 Peter 2, uh, not through the lens of our context, but through the lens of the community that it was addressed to. So the first thing to name is that slavery in first century Rome uh, was not the same as uh, the slavery that existed in the United States. It was not based on race at all, but that does not mean that it was not a degrading institution nonetheless. Um, there, there have been many books and, and volumes written about slavery and first century Roman Empire. Um, some of them really highlight uh, the harshness of it. Some of it, real, some, some of the books uh, really seem to shade over the harshness and to talk uh, about, you know, how slaves could purchase their own freedom and often had more rights than other citizens. And so I'm not really a scholar here and I can't speak to it, but I'm going to assume that uh, this was an institution even then that was degrading to a human being. And so it's really kind of hard, right, to read that Peter is offering this exhortation to move deeper into it, to not fight it, uh, to look to Jesus who suffered for them as a template for them to move deeper into their own suffering. And what I kind of walk away with, I'm not going to draw conclusions for you. I, I want you to draw your own conclusions. But what I walk away uh, with uh, in reading this passage are really two things. First, that this was written to a community in the first century who did expect the imminent return of Jesus, the second coming to happen, right? They were not looking at the long march of social progress but rather believed that they were living in the end times and that Jesus would return soon. And they experienced a fair amount of social hostility, meaning that to rock the boat uh, did not really feel like an acceptable option for them. And so I kind of read this as the best that Peter or whoever wrote this could do under those circumstances. Clearly, if we look at verse 13, uh, the author of this uh, epistle basically wants a little bit more compliance from the church, right? Accept the authority of all human institutions. Make sure you pay honor to the emperor, right? The emperor in the book of Revelation, for instance, is equated with the beast himself, right? The emperor is the devil <laughs> uh, in the symbolic world of the book of Revelation, but Peter basically says something very similar to what Paul says in Romans 13, which is that you got to play ball with the structures of society, you know, and um, whether or not that works for us today, it did make sense, I think, for the author to write this to this community in his day, uh, that Peter's concern is not so much that they change the structures of society, not that they challenge the political world, but rather that they live honorably and with dignity 
uh, within the structures that they have inherited. And that's a world of slave people and free people. And, and notice uh, what he says in verse 16, as servants of God, and I actually think that that Greek word is slaves, right? It's the same word. As slaves of God, live as free people. And so I think part of what Peter wants to do, pastorally speaking, is point all the members of his community, including those who are slaves, to the greater freedom of the gospel. Now, again, I just want to name how that can easily be misunderstood. As a pastor, I would never go to a marginalized person uh, who suffers under the weight of unjust social structures and use this passage to help them move deeper uh, into a place of disempowerment, right? That's not the way that I as pastor would use this text. But I also wanna name that 21st century America is different than first century Rome. And I wanna give Peter the benefit of the doubt and not to you know, join cancel culture and just cancel him, right? Because he spoke a word that made sense to his community in first century Rome. So kind of the tension I hold in reading this is that this was a generous and appropriate word for the community that Peter served, but that we have to be pretty careful in terms of how we apply it today. That being said, I do think that there is something for us personally here, people who are not slaves, people who enjoy a certain amount of freedom, you know, removing this from its context Frankly, I, I do think that we should look more to the way that Jesus turned the other cheek and turned our cheek more often. Uh, we should look at the way that Jesus was silent before Pilate and hold our mouth shut more often. And, and so I think that, that Peter's, even though it's a little dicey if we apply it to the institution of slavery or marginalized people, I actually think the pastoral instincts are good when applied to ourselves. Basically to say that our Lord suffered, he suffered unjustly, he kept his mouth shut, and that there are some times, not all times, there are some times when we should apply that teaching to ourselves. Where that gets dicey is when we apply it to other people. So for instance, if I'm unaware of power dynamics and I were to sit down with a young woman and to basically, you know, a young woman trying to find her voice and to use 1 Peter 2 as a, a template for the Christian life, that'd be the wrong passage, right? Because the movement of God in her life is to find her voice, to speak up. But whenever I apply it to myself, it becomes a little bit less dicey. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I've been kind of rambling a bit about this complicated passage, and I'm going to trust that the Lord's given you a good word to bring into the mix. And yeah, I see Britt chomping at the bit here. <laughs>